So we only have two paragraphs left. And there's not a whole lot to say about, about these two, but uh, uh, we'll read the passages and make a few comments. But let's open up with a word of prayer, and then we'll begin our Bible study. Well, Father, we thank you again for the time to meet together today. Lord, we thank you for your many blessings that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for making us a part of your church. Lord, of putting us together in this body of believers. And Lord, the benefit that we have one to the other. Lord, we do pray that we would love one another, even as you have loved us. Lord, that we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Lord, that we would see that we are bound together, Lord, through your spirit and through faith, Lord, into one body, and that we are to care for each other in such a way, and Lord, to live for one another, Lord, to build up each one so that we might be a complete and perfect body, Lord, made whole in the doing of your will. So Lord, help us to discern what it is that you have called us to, Lord, to exercise our gifts toward one another. Lord, to be committed to each other, and Lord, ultimately to, um, Lord, help each other to progress toward the kingdom of God. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you continue to teach and instruct us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, chapter 24, and here, this chapter, we are talking about the church, and um, what it is, and What are our obligations to one another? And here these last two uh, chapters talk about how we ought to relate to other churches, right? We understand that we are a church, a body, that's made up of distinct members or individuals who are congregated or gathered together in this church. But then we see that there are other churches as well, and how it is that we ought to relate toward and live in harmony and benefit and good for other churches as well. Not only ours, but whenever we find true churches, right? True churches, not false churches, but if there are true churches out there, and there are, then we ought to uh, help and be a benefit to them as well. And that's what chapter 14 and 15 are dealing with. So let's do 14 first and then 15. It says, Every church and all of its members are obligated to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. They must also at every opportunity, within the limits of their stations and callings, exercise their gifts and graces uh, to benefit every church. Also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, growth in love, and mutual edification. So here, they begin by stating that every church and all members are obligated to pray for the good and prosperity of all churches of Christ in every place. That we are not uh, merely concerned with our own welfare, but also for the welfare of all of the churches, wherever they are congregated, wherever they are located at. That we understand from earlier on that the church is made up of all true believers in the world. All true believers are a part of the universal church, and then that universal church manifests itself, practically speaking, in local assemblies or local congregations. Because we have to meet together, we have to encourage each other, we have to worship together. Well, we can't do that with Christians in India, right? It's impossible for us, uh, just practically speaking, logistically speaking, we can't gather every Sunday with them. We do gather together with us here, 
because we are in proximity, close enough for us to drive, to meet together, and to do the things that we do. But we also recognize that there are other churches out there. There are other true churches out there. Now, again, in our day, there's many false churches as well. We don't pray for their good and prosperity. We pray for their demise and for them to not be prosperous, but rather that they would disappear and go away or that they would repent and be faithful. But whenever there are true churches, well, we should pray for their good as well and for the prosperity of these churches in every place. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And verse... 18 says, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the spirit with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So there, he wants them to pray for all the saints. So in here, obviously, he's not talking about them. Of course, they should pray for one another, but he's talking about saints outside of them, in other cities, that they are to pray for these other saints as well, and we ought to be doing so too. Psalm 122 Psalm 122, and we'll start reading in verse 6. It says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Here, when he's speaking of Jerusalem... He's not merely speaking of the city of Jerusalem, but the inhabitants of that city, which are the saints, the righteous ones, right? The believers. Not that everyone who ever lived in Jerusalem was a true believer, but here he's praying for the believers, my brothers and my friends that live within Jerusalem. May God's blessing, God's peace, may his prosperity be upon them. Jerusalem representing the church or the believers or the saints and his desire and his prayer For all of them, and this is not just those who are here, but wherever believers are found, as we come into contact with them, as we meet them, as we know them, we should pray for them, and even those that we don't know, right? We can pray, generally speaking, for all the churches or for all the saints who are gathered today that God's blessing and his prosperity would be with all of his people. Also, they say, not only should we pray for them, but... Also, at every opportunity within the limits of their stations and callings, exercise their gifts and graces to benefit every church. As we have the opportunity within the limits of our stations and callings, we are to use our gifts and our graces to benefit every church. So if we find out that there is a sister church that has a need and we have the ability to meet that need, Even though they're not a part of our body, they're a separate body, a separate congregation, 
we should meet their need. We should do whatever we can to assist them, to help them, right? To use our gifts, our callings to be a benefit for them. If there's something that we can do that they don't have the ability to do, or one of our members has some gift, some talent that they don't have and they have need of it, then we should send them there to help them, to assist them, to do whatever they can to be a benefit to these other churches. Whatever it was within our limits, our ability, right? Again, there are times where we won't be able to do this. Right? We can't do it if it's halfway around the world or we don't know about it. But if we have the opportunity, however we can, if the need arises and if we have the ability to help, then we ought to help all of the churches not be merely focused on ourselves, right? It shouldn't be this attitude of, well, we have to look out for ourselves first and then after that we can help others, no, we're all part of one body, one body of Christ. So whatever we can do to help others, we have an obligation to do that, right? And, and whenever we have the ability, that's what we should do. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, this was the case. In the early days, the Gentile churches toward the church in Jerusalem. Romans 15, verse 25. Here, when the apostle is speaking to the church in Rome about his desire to come and visit them, he tells them that he has been hindered from doing so up to this point, but he hopes very soon in the future to be able to do so. However, at the time, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and then notice we'll pick up in verse 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So there, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, which are not in Jerusalem, these are in different parts of the world, hundreds of miles away, yet whenever they found out about the need of the saints in Jerusalem, that they were undergoing an affliction of poverty, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia took it upon themselves to make a contribution out of their means for the poor in Jerusalem. Not for the poor in Macedonia and in Achaia. Not merely for the poor among themselves. They should be doing that, but they also have a responsibility to this other church in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away, to help them. And this is the way that we ought to be as well. That was their attitude, even though many of them themselves were poor yet they gave out of their poverty to help those in Jerusalem. And this was the right thing to do. They had a duty to do this. It's an issue of reciprocity because they came to share in the spiritual blessings from the church in Jerusalem. They came to know salvation because of what the church in Jerusalem did for them. Therefore, they ought to be of service to them in material things. You reaped a spiritual reward because of their work, so now they have a material need, and you ought to repay that spiritual reward, that spiritual good they gave to you by meeting their material need. And this is what 
they did, and now the apostle is delivering it to them. Okay, next. It says, also, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, insofar as they enjoy opportunity and favorable circumstances for it, they should have fellowship among themselves for their peace, growth in love, and mutual edification. Here, when churches are raised up by the providence of God, right, in a certain region, in a certain area, right, there's this town and this town and this town in these areas, and God, in His grace, in His providence, raises up true churches in these various locations, but that are in close proximity to one another. That's what they mean by opportunity and favorable circumstances for it. Then these churches should have some fellowship among themselves for peace, growth in love, and mutual edification. The churches ought to get to know one another so that they can help each other out. This would be similar to what we do every once a month, every Saturday, one Saturday a month with the church in Texas, in the church in Norman, that we all come together for Bible study together. Though they live in Texas, though we live here, though some are in Norman, we come together for mutual edification, to love one another, to care for one another. We get to know each other, and then as we get to know one another, and some need arises, now we're aware of those things, and we're able to help them. Now we have a face to go with the person, with the church, and we're able to pray for them in a more diligent way. We, we come to know what they're going through, and now we can pray for them with more specificity. Or if they have a daughter and we have a son, well, now there's the opportunity potentially, right, if it's a good match, for there to be a marriage that comes out of that or vice versa, right? So in these ways, it is a benefit for us to get to know other true churches, right, true churches and have fellowship with them for peace, growth, love, and mutual edification, right? This is going to be a benefit for everyone, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Romans 16, 1 and 2. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Chintria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of. For she herself has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. So here, when Phoebe... This sister in Chintria was going to be visiting Rome. The apostle expected the church in Rome to welcome her, receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and then to help her in whatever she might need from you, to let her be a part temporarily while she's there of your congregation, of your fellowships, of your worship, of your Bible studies, right? Also, if you can show hospitality to her, she's in a new city, she doesn't know where she's going. Well, show her around. Take her where she needs to be. Have her into your homes for dinner. Right? Do those types of things that you would do to one another. Do it to her, though she isn't a part of your congregation regularly. She is temporarily because she's visiting this region and help her because she has helped many people as well and even the Holy Apostle. So now you help her in doing these things. So here, though she was from a different town, part of a different church on a regular basis, when she visited Rome, he wanted them to welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. And this is the way that we ought to be as well, whenever we have our brothers and sisters visiting us from other areas. Also, 3 John. 3 John. 
3 John, verse 5. 3 John, verse 5. It says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church by Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren, either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Here, there's two things. First, a commending, a commending of the church, because up to this point, they have been faithful, and when brothers are coming to them, who are strangers to them, in that they don't know them, they're not familiar with them, but they have been recommended to them, their brothers, who are coming to this area for the sake of ministry, to preach the name, to preach the name of Christ, that they have welcomed them, they have cared for them, and then they're sending them out in a manner that is worthy of God. They're receiving them as brothers, and then they're sending them out as brothers and helping them. And he says, we ought to support these kinds of people. Those who are doing the work of ministry, these would be traveling evangelists. Those who are going from town to town preaching the gospel, he says, we ought to help such men. We ought to support such men and be fellow workers in the truth. Even though we're not the ones going, right? Not all of them are able to do so. Some of them are there and they're not able to go in this way. But when they welcome them and assist them and help them, they are co-laborers with them. And this is what they had been doing. However, there is this one rascal in the church, Diotrephes, who loves to be first. He can't bear to have someone else take the spotlight from him. And he... Uh, does not receive the brethren. He even is contradicting the holy apostle, contradicting what he commands and what he does. And he's forbidding even other people from helping and assisting the brethren. So we shouldn't be like him at all, right? He is no good. He's a wicked man, an unbeliever. He uses wicked words and he contradicts the holy apostle. And what he's contradicting is he doesn't want to help the brethren, those that are coming to them from outside. He's not, and he's forbidding others from helping them as well because he wants to be first. He wants to be first among them, and this is not good. So we should not be like him, but rather we should be like those who help the brethren in whatever way that we can. So here, then, we ought to do whatever we can to associate with churches to have fellowship with him. Now, that being said, we cannot compromise on the truth. We cannot compromise. This isn't superficial fellowship. Right? This isn't fellowship for the sake of fellowship, peace for the sake of peace. The peace and fellowship in the Bible is always contingent on the truth. So we cannot have fellowship with some churches. We cannot hold hands with Roman Catholics. 
right? We cannot hold hands with many other types of churches. With many Baptist churches, we cannot hold hands because they're not taking the things of God seriously. Also, when it's talking about this fellowship, you'll notice in the confession that we're using, when it says the word communion or fellowship, the editors of this version have a footnote that says implying formal association. Now, I don't know what they mean by that, but I have my suspicions, and I don't agree with, I don't agree with them on that. When the writers of this confession in 1689, what they're talking about in fellowship is informal fellowship. It's not any structure. There's no hierarchy. There's no central system that everyone's sending money to that has executives that have been hired who are doing this and that. They don't have buildings. They're not doing those types of things at, at all. So in this time, in this era, in 1689, the fellowship that they had was an informal fellowship, right? There was Baptist churches. They all had a general agreement on doctrine, this confession of faith. And then as they were in proximity, they would have fellowship in whatever way that they could. So if one person who lived in this town was on a business trip to this other town, then he would join in with his church and they would have fellowship in that way. Or the pastors might have some correspondence and they might do, or if someone moved from this town to another town, right? this is the type of fellowship that they were having. When they, the, the editors of this version of the confession, which is a modern version that was done by the Founders Ministry, I actually call it the Flounders Ministry, Flounders, because they're floundering around. They're floundering around in the SBC when they ought to get out of the SBC, right? They're wanting, the Founders Ministry is a ministry that exists within the Southern Baptist Convention that wants to reform the Southern Baptist Convention, which is impossible to do, <clears throat> right? It's impossible to reform something that is by nature unbiblical. How can you reform a denomination when the denomination is itself an unbiblical concept, right? You can't do it. It's impossible. So the better thing is to get out of it, have independent Baptist churches that then help one another in an informal way, not a formal way. By formal, what's happened in the denomination, the denominational framework or the denominational setting is that you have all of these churches scattered throughout Oklahoma, scattered throughout the United States, and basically what you do is we're going to pull everyone's money together into a central, uh, a central uh, government or some central entity, an institution, and then that institution will buy uh, buildings that cost, for example, if you go Georgia, the Baptist General Convention of Georgia, okay? This would, in Oklahoma, some of you aren't Baptist in your background, but many of us are. But if, if you aren't, you can look it all up. In Oklahoma, we have the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, or the BGCO. The BGCO, and what typically happens in the Baptist churches is the church gathers the offerings every week, and then a portion of that goes to the Southern Baptist Convention. And the way it is distributed within the SBC is the church sends whatever portion they allot. It goes to the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. They take their cut out of it, and then they send it on to the Southern Baptist Convention. The SBC, its headquarters is in Nashville, Tennessee, and the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, its headquarters is in Oklahoma City. 
in about a $10 million building. In Georgia, they built a $60 million building. <clears throat> so this is the type of money that's being thrown around in these massive institutions, it, right? And that's what they mean by formal is a denomination, a denomination with centralized control over all the missions money and all the money. But what ends up happening is they end up giving huge salaries to these executives, to the officers, to the ones who are running the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma or the Southern Baptist Convention, right? The ones that are the bureaucrats that are over these things receive massive salaries, massive salaries, and then they pull all the money and then they distribute it. That's not what we should be doing. We should not be doing it in this type of a formal way, but we should have informal communion, informal fellowship with other churches. So we get to know what other churches are around, okay? And if we have the ability to help, then we help them. If there's a need somewhere, and together we can, three or four churches, pull our resources and send a pastor over to this other area to plant a church, then we should do that. Or to send a missionary over to another country, then we should do that. That's the type of fellowship that they're talking about, the original writers of this confession, and that's the type of fellowship that they had with one another, not the denominational structure, which is a hierarchy that you see in the Baptist churches today and likely probably the Pentecostal churches, the Methodist churches, the Assemblies of God, all of the churches are using the same structure because you, you, can, you can get really rich off of it. So anyway, okay, so that's a side point. Formal association, no good. Informal, muy bueno. Okay, 15, chapter 15. Cases of difficulties or differences, doctrinal or administrative, may arise touching on the peace, union, and edification of all churches in general or an individual church. Other cases may occur when a member or members of a church are injured in or by disciplinary action that is not in keeping with truth and order. In such cases, it is according to the mind of Christ for many churches having fellowship together to meet through their messengers to consider and give their advice concerning the issue in dispute and to report their advice to all the churches concerned. Nevertheless, these assembled messengers are not entrusted with any church authority, strictly speaking. Neither do they have any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any discipline, either over any churches or individuals, or to impose their decision on the churches or officers. Here, what they're talking about is whenever there is an issue that arises within a church, whether that be a doctrinal issue, when these things happen, Throughout the history of the church, there are false doctrines that permeate the churches that will sweep through an area, and then the churches are unsure of what to do, right? What should we do? What are we supposed to believe? Because there's this heresy, this new teaching that is sweeping the area, and many people are embracing it, and it's necessary for the churches to address and to deal with these types of things. Or it may be some administrative issue. Typically, everything that we need, day in and day out, we're going to be able to handle here. But if something arises and there's a difficult situation or when where the elders or where there's some disagreement and they, we can't come to some resolution, then it may be beneficial to consult outside churches, right, those that we have fellowship with, to consult other elders outside of our church 
to get their thoughts, right? To get their wisdom, to see what they say about this issue. And then it may help us resolve those types of things, right? That's what they're talking about here. Whether it be some issue of discipline, whether it be some doctrinal issue, whether it be some case of difficulty in terms of administration. And this is how the early churches, many of the early church creeds and confessions arose because of these types of issues. There was some false teaching that was spreading throughout the churches. So the churches would send messengers to one area, to one locale, and there they would meet. They would talk about the issues. They would study the scriptures, and then they would write the confession or the creed that would outline what the churches should believe concerning this point of doctrine. So like the Council of Chalcedon, the Nicene Creed, right? These various creeds, you can look these up from church history. It was a gathering of elders, of pastors from various churches throughout this area. They all came together and then they would address these issues and write a definitive statement on what the Bible teaches and what the Bible condemns. And this is the way that they conducted themselves during these times. So they would come together in these difficult times, right, in order to help each other have understanding. And this, because of the pattern established in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, this is what happened with the Jerusalem council, right? And this is during the days of the apostles. So if during the days of the apostles, they had the need to, to have a council to address this issue, then it also may arise in our own day as well. And it would be necessary for us to join together with other churches to look at this issue and to have uh, a pooled wisdom together in order to address it. Okay? Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So here we have this issue. False teachers are teaching that unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas are opposing them, saying, no, this is not right. And so the church, the brethren determine, Paul and Barnabas, you need to go to Jerusalem Consult the apostles and elders of the church in Jerusalem, see what they have to say about this issue, and then report back to us. And that's what they're going to do. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With the words of the prophets, with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in their synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter to them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greeting. Since we heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instructions, have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, uh, having become of one mind, to select men to uh, send you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus. Therefore we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed from idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. And if you keep yourself free from such things, you will do well, farewell. So there, Paul and Barnabas were sent. They conferred with the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. They had debate. They had dissension with those who disagreed. Then they came to one mind. They wrote what they expected. And then they sent it back with Paul and Barnabas and with other testimonies. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas back to the men of Antioch to report to them what the conclusion of the church was. And then this is what they did. So there may be times when it's necessary for us to do the same thing. If some false teaching rises up that is infiltrating the churches, that we send messengers together or that we go and meet with other churches, with other pastors, and we look at these issues together, we study the Bible together, and we come to a consensus of what the Bible teaches concerning this issue so that we can give clarity and instruction to the church. However, when this is the case, the last thing they say is, these assembled messengers are not entrusted with any church authority, strictly speaking. Right? Meaning, simply, not that we don't have authority when we have the Word of God. We have the ultimate authority when we have the Word of God on our side. But the way the churches are to be structured is that the, the, the church here, the authority resides here in this church not in a hierarchy. That's what they're dealing with here. They don't want there to be some hierarchy that's over the churches, right, that holds the churches captive 
And if you don't do what we tell you, then we're going to come and confiscate your building, your properties. We're going to come and remove your pastor. We're going to do those types of things. Now, if the church rejects what the Bible says, then it's not a true church, and that church is going to face the wrath of Christ on the day of judgment. But strictly speaking, if the church consults us, and we go and give them and say, this is what the Bible teaches, and then they reject that, and they go on their own way, then there's nothing else that we can do. We can't go throw their pastor out. We can't go shut their building down, put a chain on it. We can warn people and say, these people are crazy over here. I wouldn't go to that church. But there's nothing that we can do. We don't have any authority over any of these other congregations. We have authority over our own congregation, but then each church is its own entity, right? Each church is its own congregation, and each church is responsible to do the will of God. And if they don't, then they'll have to take that up with Christ. But the messengers that come together don't have any authority. Now, this is contrary to some church systems, like the Presbyterians, the Methodists, many other churches, they have a hierarchy, right, where the power over the local church isn't in the local church, but it's in some board that is in a different town, right? And they're the ones that have ultimate authority. And if the church doesn't do what the board says, then the board will come and seize the property because they own everything, right? And in this way, the local church is a slave to the board. Now, that's not a problem if the board is doing what's good and right. But typically what happens? The board goes rotten, and then the board expects the church to go rotten as well. And then if the church resists, then they're without their building, their land. They, they're thrown out onto the street, and then they just have to start over. And that's why the Baptist churches have always had local congregations where the authority is within the local congregation. We own our own properties. We have our own assets. It's all ours. So there's no one outside of us that can control that. It's all within the body, within the local congregation. So they don't have any authority over them in this way. 1 John chapter 4 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. So there... He's talking to the church, the local church, that they themselves have to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because there's many false prophets that have gone out into the world. So it is, ultimately, it is their responsibility to do these things. Now, they can get assistance from others, and they should. Right? If we come to know that this one man is a false teacher, a false prophet then we should warn other people, stay away from this guy, right? Avoid him, don't go to his church, or don't let him come to your church, right? Don't do those types of things. But ultimately, each church is its own entity, and each church is going to be accountable to Jesus Christ. 
And the elders of the church and the congregation of the church have a responsibility to do the will of Christ. And they will be held accountable for how they have done those things. Then lastly, 2 Corinthians 1, which I don't think, strictly speaking, is addressing the topic at hand. But 2 Corinthians 1.24 says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. So here the apostle, though he, he did have the authority over the churches, but he didn't lord it over them in this type of a way. But rather, he encouraged them and admonished them to do what was right. Then, if necessary, he would come and deal with them more harshly. Right? But in our case, we don't have apostles anymore. We have the word of Christ, but we don't have apostles who have authority over, over all the churches. So in our case, then, it is the church and the elders of the church who are responsible for the well-being of the church and that will answer to God for what they do. Those elders in that congregation can consult other churches to gain wisdom and understanding on issues, but ultimately it is the church's responsibility. Each local church, it is their responsibility to do the will of God, to believe the word of God, and to do and practice what is consistent with the will of God. And then each church and the elders of that church will be responsible for those things. So, we should help in whatever way that we can, right? Help, assist, be in fellowship in whatever way that we, in whatever way that we can with other churches. Okay, well, we'll pray, and then after that, we'll take the Lord's Supper, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, um, Lord, just that you have made us a part of your body, and Lord, we are grateful that today, Lord, all over uh, this globe, Lord, we know that there are Christians, true believers who are gathering together, Lord, who are meeting together to worship you, Lord, to study the scriptures, Lord, to be edified and built up to, be, to fellowship, Lord, with other saints. Lord, we thank you that though in every generation there is only a remnant who will be saved, yet, Lord, this remnant, Lord, is being called, Lord, out of this world, Lord, from every tribe and tongue and language and people, Lord, all over the, the, the face of this earth. And so, Lord, we pray today, Lord, for the welfare of all of the churches. Lord, we pray that you would build them up. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify them and that you would encourage them and strengthen them, Lord, wherever it is that they might be found. Lord, we think especially of the churches that are suffering, Lord, that are in areas where there is a more severe persecution. We pray for their protection, Lord, for their safety and for their welfare. Lord, we pray that you would raise up men of God, Lord, pastors among them, Lord, who would teach the word of God without any compromise, Lord, who would preach the whole counsel of the Lord. Lord, we pray as well in our own day, Lord, when we see so many churches that are meeting, Lord, many buildings, Lord, many uh, people that are gathering together, and yet, Lord, we know that the churches in, in America, Lord, and in the West have, Lord, fallen on very hard times. Lord, have fallen into much apostasy. 
Lord, believing many things that are false, that are wrong, Lord, that are not consistent with your word. Lord, we pray that there would be a revival in our own land. Lord, that there would be a reformation of the churches. Lord, that they would turn away from foolishness. And Lord, that they might be serious concerning your word and do those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, we pray that you would add to our number. Lord, that you would bring those who are like-minded. Lord, those who, who want to serve you and, and walk with you, Lord, in the same way that we do. Lord, we pray that you would bring them together and that we might be one body and that we might help and benefit one another. So, Lord, we ask for the strengthening of this church, Lord, for its favor, for its blessing and prosperity, and that, Lord, you would build it up and that you would help us, Lord, to find those who are out there, Lord, that might be like-minded with us and that might join together with us, Lord, in worshiping and serving you. So, Lord, we ask that you would continue to work on this earth, Lord, continue to build up your church, Lord, until you bring the full number of your children, Lord, into your flock. And, Lord, we'll give you all the praise and glory for these things. Lord, as well, as we now uh, take the Lord's Supper, Lord, we thank you for what this supper represents, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we know that salvation can come from no one else, that, Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord, that we are without you and without hope in this world, and without your grace, each and every one of us, Lord, would be destined for an eternity in hell. Lord, it is only through your grace and mercy that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, it is only through the mediation of your Son that this is accomplished. By his offering his body, Lord, our sin being placed upon him on the tree, and him dying for our sins, and by his precious blood, Lord, that was shed for us. Lord, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Lord, we know that his blood is very precious. Lord, it is able to cleanse us from all of our defilement. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we would be reminded again today as we observe him in these symbols. Lord, of what it is that he's done for us and that our salvation rests upon him and him alone. So Lord, teach us today and bless us. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.